UMass fans on your tweets and make some noise for your podcaster. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? Oh, I remember man. when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. <laughs> and he rips him down, he puts him in his seat, and he looks at him and goes, that was fucking hilarious, but you really just got to shut up. I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> All right, everybody, this is Curious Sage coming to you live in New York City about midnight on what is, I guess, April 30th. My goal is always to get at least one episode in a month, so I wanted to get one in tonight. It'll probably come out tomorrow. Uh, we're going to do, I think, a full episode breaking down hoops and mailbag and all that uh, probably sometime this week. But for now, we've just finished recording a an absolute tour de force of an interview with former UMass quarterback A.J. Doyle, who was the darling of Charlie Molnar's first recruiting class. And a little backstory on the interview, because it does kind of come out of left field in terms of, you know, we haven't broken down UMass hockey's run to the national title game. We haven't broken down all the roster moves for UMass hoops. So why a random episode about, the Molnar years, the answer is pretty simple. It's just that it's interesting, and that's primarily what dictates the uh, rhythms of this program is what we find interesting and what people on UMass Twitter find interesting. And I think that from a narrative perspective, kind of the shittiness of that era is fascinating and worthy of exploration, particularly because I think the consensus has emerged, you know, and, and solidified over the last several years that Molnar himself was the real problem. AJ's interview absolutely confirms that. And uh, I just want to thank him again for being so candid and honest and willing to kind of reflect. You could, you got the sense that, you know, and I, and I tried to set this tone throughout, but he wasn't there to just, you know, shit talk an old coach. And if you're, kind of one of these um, obnoxious, you know, old school types who says, you know, the coach is always right and blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe this isn't the one for you because if you're, but if you're, if you're serious about this and you're listening to it uh, in good faith, you'll understand that it's pretty clear that AJ Doyle didn't have, you know, an injury. He didn't want to do this in, in terms of, you know, looking back, right. It's pretty clear. And I think Bennett, you know, feel free to chime in, but it was very interesting to get into the psyche a little bit of Charlie Molnar and kind of understand the way that, that his style impacted players and impacted the mood around the program. And, you know, for me, I think watching Molnar and I talk about this in the interview, his affect and his kind of nature was just almost more bizarre and and just flat and and strange than anything else for AJ though and for players who who had to deal with that it's it just sounded like an incredibly just an incredibly unenjoyable grind and when you totally suck the joy out of sports like that it, it's rarely successful and the few times it is the guy is such a mastermind that you know maybe like a Belichick example, they say it's not always fun to play for him, but like it's Belichick, you know, you're going to win. It's, you know, so there's a reward at the end of the day. 
Molnar, it, it, you know, as we'll, you'll learn tonight, there was, there was none of that. And I also think it's just important to reflect on that era from a fan perspective in the sense that, especially for those newer UMass fans who've come to UMass in the last six or seven years since he was, he's been gone uh, or six years, like I guess five and change since he's been gone. It's, it's important to understand kind of the trajectory of, of where UMass football and UMass athletics is in general. And, also, what Bamford and his crew had to inherit uh, when they took over here um, four four years ago. I think that Molnar was gone, but the 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 residue um, or the residual effects of his tenure, you know, lingered for a little while. I think it's a really you know interesting thing to look at when you think about just the nature of how hiring works and how guys like this end up in the positions they do in the first place. And I'm curious to hear people's thoughts. So, you know, I think it's a bit of a, at first there's a bit of a, it's a bit slow moving. There's a lot to get through. Um, but if you really are, are, are a diehard, this is must listen stuff, particularly for UMass football fans. And also for anyone who's just intrigued by kind of the, the role that, you know, culture plays around a program and, you know, how a program uh, loses its edge. Um, Bennett, you got anything to add? I mean, I, like I'm, I'm going to, I haven't cut it yet, but I already have, like, I normally make a joke in the tweet. Like there's no joke in this tweet. It's just going to be like, listen, you need to listen to this episode. You need to listen to this interview. Um, it was very eye opening to listen to from my side, just sitting there and listen to a recording uh, definitely worth it's a, it's a full it's a 90 minute interview it's it I will tell you this it was prob it was probably a more full 90 minutes than and I know Sage I know you don't get this than the most recent the, the Game of Thrones battle scene that just happened it is a more full 90 minutes than that episode it's a more what was the last part full it, it it's it's that the the most recent episode there were kind of parts where it dipped a little bit this is this is a much more strong i'd say i'd say full interview yeah see i was concerned at mo for moments that i was you know because that i wasn't conducting it as well as i would have liked to because i think you know aj was just like really honest the whole time but you could tell there were moments where you know you don't again he he was doing something to say and he wanted to get it off his chest and it's been been there for a long time and I think he wanted he genuinely was doing serious UMass fans a real service by articulating kind of what we saw from afar uh, and what that looked like from within as a player it wasn't like let me get on a podcast and like bash my old coach and I, I just want to I think it was commendable that he came on and I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, we kind of solicited him to come on the show. He didn't seek us out to bash an ex coach. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like that. It was very much just, he was, I think talking to someone on Twitter and I, I about, you know, his college years. And I kind of just was like, Hey, you want to talk about this on the show? And probably a little bit of reluctance at first. And then he was like, you know, sure. But this was not like, you know, for us as a, as fans, I think there is for Molnar is kind of lives on as kind of a joke in a certain sense. Um, but if you you know he, he's lack of his lack of self awareness and just his kind of affect 
is sort of ridiculous. Um, but if you lived it, it sucked, you know, and if you're and if, and it, I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, like, I think it's a real lesson in the importance of, you know, hiring the right person for these jobs. I mean, these are big jobs. And, um, you know, it, you know, it's worth noting, I think Molnar fooled a lot of us. We, we thought it was a, it was, a, you know, it's, many of us thought it was a slam dunk hire at the time. But it quickly became apparent it wasn't. And. Uh, getting an inside look at that, you, you just there's there's it's hard not to have empathy for the players because it, it just sounded like a toxic environment and just a joyless one. Uh, and so it was I think it was very useful to have that uh, perspective. And I hope people uh, you know enjoy it. Please let us know what you think and, and share the episode. Okay, so tonight we're very fortunate to have this guest on the program, and I got to say that if there had been betting odds on who would be the first former UMass athlete to appear on this program, and we're like 45, 50 episodes in without ever having a an actual former UMass athlete, I am devoted to UMass athletics, so that maybe, I don't know what that, I got to say, I probably wouldn't have been a football player. We, we have done, you know, two, three, four episodes maybe on football, but this is primarily a basketball program. And if it was going to be a football player, I'll be candid again, it probably wouldn't be from the era in which we're about to explore. Because from a wins-losses perspective, that was a, a time that some UMass fans, many UMass fans would probably rather forget. But for those who follow this stuff closely, including yours truly, this is a fascinating era in UMass athletics history. We're talking about, of course, let's just let's just set the scene. You know, before we introduce our guests, let's let's step back and set the scene for those who haven't followed UMass athletics all that long. The year is 2011, maybe early 2012, and UMass, after uh, a shitty 2011 FCS campaign, which led to then coach Kevin Morris's ouster, UMass kind of abruptly decides to join the MAC and go 1A or FBS in college football. They have to hire a coach. Budgets are kind of tight. Uh, there's this plan to play at Gillette Stadium. Um, and John McCutcheon, the athletic director at the time, decides to go with a career assistant from Notre Dame, who was the offensive coordinator for Brian Kelly at the time, although I think Brian Kelly did much of the play calling, man by the name of Charlie Molnar. So most of you probably know his reign is disastrous. He's canned after two wins and two after achieving just two wins in two seasons. Mark Whipple comes back. He coaches five years, gets the program certainly to a much better place than it was under Molnar. And he's canned uh, this past December, which led to the start of the Walt Bell era that we are now uh, about to witness. The first critical recruit of that Charlie Molnar era, the first guy to get us, uh, get UMass fans really excited about kind of the move to FBS was the 
a kid from Quincy who, at least as I recall it, was promised at least the opportunity to compete as a true freshman uh, under center as a quarterback for a first-year program. And he was, at the time, if I recall correctly, a, a commit at NC State and was committed there to play for, I think it must have been Tom Coughlin, the former, uh, not Tom, Tom Coughlin, <laughs> Jim, what's his name? Tom O'Brien, uh, former BC coach who had then was coaching the Wolfpack down in, in the Research Triangle in North Carolina. His name was um, A.J. Doyle, and that is where we jump in right now with tonight's guest. Welcome to the pod after a lot of technical difficulties and 20-some-odd minutes of waiting for this one to get underway. We apologize for that. A.J., thank you for, for coming on tonight. Was my character characterizing of your uh, biography mostly accurate? Did I get all the basic facts down? Uh, yeah, the only the only thing is, and I know why it says that, um, I'm actually from a town called Lakeville, Mass. Um, so that's the only thing. Okay. The Quincy Where, part was the Quincy part was I was only born there. Lakeville okay. is a a small town off of 495 down towards the Cape. Okay, so like going toward Plymouth. Uh, you know where Taunton is? Sure. Right next to Taunton, New Bedford, that area. So where'd you go to high school? Uh, I went to high school at Catholic Memorial in uh, West Roxbury. Notorious powerhouse in sports, particularly. It's I always think of Catholic Memorial as a as a big hockey school, right? Like the Super Eight. Yeah. Yeah. As a, yeah. Yeah. As a Western Mass kid, we that was always just like more like myth than reality because it was just like a world away, and you'd see it like maybe in the Boston Herald with like Bishop you know gorman or what i don't even know mm -hmm. just like bunch bunch of schools that were just like you know wow that's a that's like a different world than western mass but pretty good sports right i mean quality football you played like zavarian i presume and, and some of those yeah schools. we were in the we were in what's called the catholic conference so zavarian bc high st john's prep and um, malden catholic um actually my class at cm was myself um Two of my best friends, Cameron Williams and Armani Reeves, both went to Ohio State, both national champions. And then we had a fourth kid um, named Donovan Henry, who was going to go to BC for football, but uh, went to Northeastern on a full track scholarship instead. So you guys were loaded. And I think often that that league is overlooked nationally. And there's a lot of good football players that have come out of there. I'm trying to think, Severian, if I'm recalling correctly, had uh, the, was it Joey Colton that went there? Yeah, yeah, they had uh, Joey Colton was a year ahead of me, so um, but ended up coming into UMass, um, walking on at UMass the same year as me, 2012. Um, and then they had a kid named Mo Hurst who went to Michigan and was supposed to be a first round draft pick last year, um, but dealt with some medical issues and actually ended up going to the Raiders late round, one of the late rounds. Um, and then BC High has had some had some big time players over the years. They had a couple guys that that were in my class that went to schools like Harvard. Um, and then St. John's Prep always has you know one or two good players a year. Um, they send FBS mostly mostly linemen. Um, they get a lot of the North Shore kids where CM BC High and Zavarian are all South Shore um, in, in the city of Boston. And then do you guys can play like Everett? They're always a powerhouse in Eastern Mass. 
We actually never did. Um, unfortunately, we, as seniors, we had wanted to, um, and we had had an opening in our schedule, but, uh, things just didn't work out. Um, you know, it would have been a lot of fun too. My, uh, my roommate, my freshman year, um, Vondell Langston actually went to Everett. So, so we always used to talk about what would have happened, what if, but, uh, you know, nothing yeah, ever materialized. I was, was going to say, you think of the powerhouses spots in, in Massachusetts that, that end up, you know, kids FBS or certainly UMass because that's the context with which I'm familiar. It's Everett. Mm -hmm. You got some, Bro you have some Brockton kids. I think Darren Fellin, if I recall correctly, yep. was a Brockton kid. Um, and so anyway, we don't need to get into to the to the nitty gritty of, of Bay State high school football. But the point is, you're coming yeah. from a powerhouse and you're committed at NC State as a linebacker. And mm -hmm. then this character comes along pretty late in the process, guy by the name of Charlie Molnar, and somehow, you know, convinces you that you should come to a fledgling first year FBS program that at that time, I don't even think had uh, 85 scholarships yet and was really, you know, in a, in a state of precariousness and uncertainty. Tell me about his pitch and kind of how, how he flipped you. Um, so, I mean, this goes back to the whole, you know, don't give him credit on anything. Um, he actually didn't flip me. I decommitted from NC State in the, I committed July of 2011 and then decommitted about halfway through October. Um, because like you said, I was, I was committed as a linebacker. Um, but I'd played three games of linebacker my senior year of high school. And that was really the only defense that I had played. And I'd always played quarterback from the time I turned, you know, from the time I started playing football at seven years old and pop Warner. Um, and I really wanted to, and I had met Charlie back when he was at Notre Dame and, it, obviously, I'd followed them there. Um, I'd followed them at Cincinnati, and I'd seen the, the offenses that he had. So I developed somewhat of a relationship with him there. Um, oh, so he, he was – wait, let me get that straight. So he was recruiting you when he was at Notre Dame a little bit? Uh, he wasn't responsible for our area. A guy named Bob Diaco was. But, yeah, I had sure. – going through junior days you, and camps and stuff. Diaco, I had, right? Yeah, yep. Um, going through junior days and stuff, I, I had met him and – and developed somewhat of a relationship with him. So fast forward to when he gets the job, I think it was December, um, uh, beginning of December of 2011. Um, I actually remember I was driving over to my girlfriend's house and I looked down at my phone and I get a call from this random number and I pick it up and I say, you know, I say, hi, this is AJ, you know, and he goes, AJ, do you know who this is? And I'm sitting there like, you know, I don't, who is it? And he goes, it's Charlie Molnar, head coach at UMass. And so we start getting talking and he says, listen, I'd love to come out, um, love to come out, sit down with you and your family, come to your house and, and just talk to you about what we can offer you at UMass. I'd love to have you. I know we, you know, the last staff had offered you, I want you to know that your scholarship, you know, we're going to honor that scholarship offer and, you know, would love to come out and see you and talk with your family and explain my vision. So sure enough, probably a week later, he came out and sat down with me and my family at my house, actually on my eight, 18th birthday, I think it was. Um, and just him and coach Waldron had come out and sat down in my living room and just talked. And, you know, he, he had explained to me what he did, what he, the past offenses he had had at Notre Dame and Cincinnati. And I had obviously followed guys like Zeke, 
uh, not Zeke Pike, sorry, Tony Pike, um, who threw for like 5,000 yards, 40 plus touchdowns, just ridiculous numbers. So the opportunity to go to UMass, stay in state, and play for a guy that had a high flying offense at the time, there was no better situation for me. And by the time he walked out of the, him and Coach Waldron walked out the door, um, I told him I was on board. I said, you know, I want to commit. This is this is where I want to be. Um, so a bit of my own arrogance, I think, it also played a part in it. Where, like I said, I could be that that home that hometown guy going to play at UMass, um, going to play games at Gillette, and playing for a guy that at the time I thought, you know, was calling all these plays for, you know, quarterbacks thrown for five thousand yard ridiculous numbers, um, and that's that's kind of the way it went at the beginning. So. Let me just, I mean, I may have missed something about there in the, in the lead up, but sight, so sight unseen, you basically commit to UMass at that point, who mm. else was recruiting you? Uh, and, and did you do any kind of due diligence on Molnar in the, in the week between the phone call and the, and the actual, uh, meeting at your house? Um, not so much in terms of looking into them, um, just kind of what I knew based off of the Notre Dame numbers, the Cincinnati numbers. Um, as far as recruiting at that point, I had had a couple offers um, and things had kind of cooled down. Um, at, like you said, it was kind of late in the process. Um, I mean, I knew I'd find a spot somewhere, but that, like I said, it was kind of the perfect storm of, you know, seeing that offense at Notre Dame and Cincinnati and having had developed somewhat of a relationship with them going through going through camps and, and junior days and things at Notre Dame that, you know, I felt comfortable going there. Okay. And so you had met him. Uh, you mentioned Diaco was responsible for your geographic territory, but you'd met him, mm -hmm. uh, Molnar, at the camps like prior to that a little bit? Yeah, I'd met him at the uh, first meeting was one of the junior days that I went out with um, another player from from out here in Eastern Mass um, who was being recruited by Notre Dame at the time. Met him there, then went back out for the camp um, and started to develop somewhat of a relationship with him, um, going to the original you know, big camp and then being pulled out of that to go to the elite one day camp and throw with some of the other top guys in my class with some of the top skill players as well. And so that's not like, that's the camp thing. I don't know a ton about recruiting in, in, in football, mm -hmm. but the camp things are kind of like a, it's not a, it's a showcase. Like, are there other coaches from other schools there or is it Notre Dame pretty much being like, this is a, we're sort of testing you to see if we might be interested in you coming here. So, the big camp that it was basically an overnight camp um, was Notre Dame. And I think just other local schools in the area, smaller schools, BC does similar things where they bring in, you know, division two, II, division three schools. Um, but then when I got pulled into the one day camp, it was just, uh, just Notre Dame coaches. And for every player, it's different. I mean, there's guys that, they don't even need to walk into or walk onto a campus like a Jadavian Clowney where they just, a school's going to call them up and offer them. Um, but Massachusetts high school football players, you got to go to camps. And that was one of the camps because obviously Notre Dame as a, as a guy that 
loved football and recognized the name and everything that had come with Notre Dame and the history. I always wanted to go there. Um, so that was one of the camps that me and my parents had made a point to go out and go to. So, All right. That's great context. So tell me about when he comes into your, your house. What's your first impression? I mean, you, you, you were sold that day. So he obviously mm-hmm. – had a way with, you know, you know, he, he had an ability to, to convince it, you know, an impressionable 18 year old that, you know, it was a great situation. You mentioned the 5,000 yards from Pike and, and kind of what he'd done with other, other quarterbacks. You alluded to how you, you know, got to know him a little bit or had, you know, at least a sense of familiarity with him from when you were out at Notre Dame, but it's mm-hmm. still, you know, it's a big decision. And so I'm just kind of intrigued by what, and, and I'll say this to the, to the audience too, is that, there's this consensus, I think, among certainly with myself, but among a lot of Molnar, who we now, in retrospect, look back on as just this abject disaster. We all kind of bought what he was selling. And I'm a pretty cynical guy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and like to believe that, you know, uh, I can see through the bullshit. But, you know, when he first came, I was like, oh, wow, seems like a slam dunk hire, Notre Dame. Is that sort of where your head was at? Or, you know, or, or were there... You know, I mean, when he when he comes in your home, like, is it just like this guy is an unbelievable recruiter? I mean, he just like sort of, you know, you know, blows your hair back and, and you're really like, wow, this guy has, has got it. Or, or did you have any skepticism initially? Um, not so much. No, um, it was he came in and it was nice, easy conversation. Um, both him and Coach Waldron at the time, um, they were the only two on Coach Waldron was the only other coach on the staff um, and they just came in and. You know, we're upfront and honest and, and talked about all the advantages of being a Massachusetts kid and going to play at UMass and and being part of that first FBS class and that history and then going to play at Gillette and just kind of having a basic understanding of what his background was. Um, like I said, it was all kind of a perfect storm and it all just worked out and you know, that was something I knew I'd wanted to be a part of. UMass was the first school to offer me a scholarship as well, which is something that, I mean, no matter who you are, you're always going to remember which, which school is the first, first to offer you a scholarship. So, um, there was always that kind of respect, I, I would say for, for the school to, to be the first. Um, so, things just kind of worked out naturally and and I'd felt good enough with what coach Waldron and, and coach Molnar had said to me both ac- athletically and academically um, that it was going to be a great fit. So this is all informative but let's now cut forward I guess you show up for mm-hmm. do you show up for the summer or do you not show up till spring to, till summer camp in like August? No, we as um, as a, as the first freshman class, we had to report on July eighth um, of twenty twelve. So we were there for the technically, I believe it's the second semester of, of summer classes at UMass. Um, we were there. We were taking two classes online um, and working out every day. Okay, but at that point, you're still working out with whoever the strength coach is, or you're not. Yeah, you're the not coaches weren't you. allowed to. Yeah, the coaches weren't allowed to at that point in time. Um, in 2012, coaches weren't allowed to to be around us during the summer. Um, things two years later changed where the rules changed a bit and, and coaches were allowed some time with their players. But no, it was just um, just all the guys that were there on scholarship and our strength coaches and, and, the, and the training staff. So you get and, and that was it. 
so you get there and uh how, how how's that first you know three or formal camp opens good good to solid start to your your tenure in amherst yeah yeah it was great um you know it was it was it was a lot of fun being there with all the guys in my class um you know we were all ex- obviously going into college it's a it's a great experience in itself but um being there early, getting to know the campus and, and getting to be on campus before students were there and, and kind of things get crazy. Um, and for a while, having it just be just the freshman class because the, the older guys had gotten a break before camp started. Um, it was, it was, it was great. You know, we had, we had a lot of fun hanging out in the dorm rooms, going to classes, eating meals together, you know, going to movies, that sort of stuff you're bonding everything's going well and then august opens camp returns and mm-hmm. a, a sort i've been doing a little research on this and a, and a source who is um you know pretty familiar with uh that time in in umass football history said to me and let me just pull this up here and i quote says at the beginning the fact that you know molnar was basically the opposite of kevin morris his predecessor was seemed good and he says it didn't take long, though, to realize that he was crazy, referring to Molnar. He says, <laughs> he says, watching him stomp around practice with a bullhorn made me pretty sure it was going to be a tire fire. So we know what happened. We know the end of the story, or most, most of our listeners know the end of the story. And they know that, that after two seasons, uh, which is two total wins and a lot of disastrous losses, Mm-hmm. as well as a lot of things swirling around about the culture around the program and these and all this other stuff that it wasn't good but take me to like the first day the first week the first two weeks of camp where, where what is your, what are your, what are your vibes on Molnar not only because and I want to give Molnar a little bit of empathy here just in the sense that he's a first time head coach mm-hmm. so for for some to some degree that's always going to be a new thing for anyone no matter even though he was in his probably late 40s maybe 50 at the time just tell, tell me like about the early camp. And it's also hard because two, you know, three fourths of that class wasn't um, recruited to play at that level. So, you know, I, I think you can't entirely be put on the coach, but I'm just, I'm just curious, like how does he lead camp? What, what, what's the vibe around the start of the first FBS season? So, I mean, going into camp, obviously it's going to be a new experience, especially with, um, with us freshmen going in. Um, you, you're not sure what to expect because it's it's college football, it's FBS football. We're getting prepared to play UConn in you know three and a half, four weeks. Um, it was tough. It was grueling. Um, we had three and a half to four hour practices on the field. We were out there. It was ninety something plus every day. It was we were on McGurk at the time it was enclosed and it had just, the, it has all the metal bleachers on the side. So we're baking. Um, and at this point, most of us freshmen, we don't, we don't know any better. Um, because we think that this is probably what the rest of college football is doing. Um, and to say that we were doing crazy things, it, it's, it wouldn't be right, but when we were out there for two days and we're out there for a total of, you know, seven hours for practice, um, it gets to a point where guys' legs are, are going out from under them. Guys are losing 
15 to 20 something pounds in, in water weight of practice. Guys are cramping up whole bodies, having to go to the hospital, get IVs. Um, it was kind of alarming at that point, but like I said, it was something that, at least from my opinion, I don't know if I, not, I didn't know any better, but you know, what am I supposed to think? This is my freshman year. Um, you know, we didn't really talk much about camp with the older guys before, um, until probably a week or two in where guys started saying, all right, this is, this is pretty funny. Like this is, this is pretty grueling. And, 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 you know, maybe it is because of that transition from FCS to FBS, but then as things went on, like I said, when we were out there for seven hours a day for two a days, or we were out there for three and a half, four hours for practice and full pads and quarterbacks are losing 15 plus pounds in water weight, then, you know, something's kind of up because, and I can say this from transitioning from a quarterback to a tight end, my senior year, we had it so easy as quarterbacks um, compared to the rest of the guys on the team. So that's now looking back at it. Yeah. That I don't want to say it wasn't right, but it just, it was funky. Yeah. So uh, just playing devil's advocate, when you hear anybody talk about two a days, pretty much anywhere in the country, you hear that it's like pretty fucking insane, you know? Mm -hmm. And I guess like besides the, hours which it does sound like that sounds you know over the top mm-hmm. but even by standards of control i thought i actually thought there was like nca rules about how many hours you could practice and you know i don't whatever but um is there anything beyond just like the grueling work ethic stuff and and kind of you know uh, just the the demands of practice from like a kind of leadership perspective that you're noticing about like how these practices are conducted or how he's sort of motivating the team or like it sounds like ultimately guys were like skeptical pretty early and the, and it, and I'm, I'm wondering like besides just the the hours um mm-hmm. what raised your their, their kind of their eyebrows a little what was the cause of concern about just his his vibe his like affect well i can say in terms of the two-a-days piece a lot of us found out two years later when coach whip came in that if you're having a two a day practice, one of them's going to, or they're going to be shortened in terms of the total time. Um, and one practice is probably going to be a little bit shorter and one of them is going to be in either shells or just shoulder pads and helmets versus under coach Molnar, it was full pads and it was, we started every single practice out with, uh, Oklahoma drills, which, I get first day of pads. You want to get some guys. Walk us through it, you know, for those who haven't played the game, what's what's an Oklahoma drill? Um, The way we did it was we'd have either an offensive lineman, defensive lineman, a wide receiver, a DB, a tight end linebacker um, set on the line, and then a quarterback turning around, handing it off to a back, and you basically get five yards of of, or five yards of width. and it's just it's full contact. Guys are trying to make tackles. Guys are trying to get off blocks. Um, and the backs got to basically get across the line. And we did that every single practice for two straight seasons under him. We did it before every single game, which was that was the that was one of the more crazy things that we ever did. That 
it just you knew there was something off there that we shouldn't be doing this because guys were getting hurt because guy because it was just like you didn't see any of your friends from anywhere yeah. else doing this or yeah yeah no guy, guys were getting hurt guys were getting banged up right at the beginning of practice getting stingers all that sort of stuff and and kind of slowing everything down and like i said a little bit earlier guys legs are starting to get out of it now guys upper bodies are starting to get out and when you have a team going into their first FBS game, and, and this is has no bearing on on the final score of that game, but UConn had had a head coach that had gone through the transition and knew what they were doing, and and we're coming in basically f- off of four straight weeks of full pads, full tilt every day, um, and guys' legs are. They just aren't underneath them, and it's just tough to – it's tough to ask the offensive and defensive lines and linebackers and, and tight ends and running backs and every position on the field to go out there and and, and put 100% in when their bodies aren't 100% because they're getting banged up every single day because we're starting practices off doing Oklahoma's for 10, 15 minutes where we're getting – and we're getting a lot of reps because we're just going down the, down the line from – the basically the five yard line to the 50. Um, so I think th- from a quarterback's perspective, and like I said, it, from a quarterback, it, it was a lot easier of a practice, but still just seeing what those guys were going through the bumps and bruises that you get along the way naturally. I think those were increased a, a lot because we're doing this stuff every single day and we're hitting every single day where there wasn't a, there wasn't a time where it's like, okay, let's let's take a day or two here off where we're gonna go either in, in shells or just helmets and and we're gonna we're gonna give the guys legs a break and we're gonna focus on having a fast, crisp practice versus let's have a physical, tough practice and and, and try and you know, weed some guys out. So the funny thing about this, and I don't mean to say funny because obviously it's it's not <laughs> doesn't doesn't but the funny thing about this is when as a fan you're looking at the scores and yeah. you guys are getting there's there's nothing about Charlie Molnar football teams that would suggest uh, that there was a particular like physicality on defense. You're getting absolutely lit up on the scoreboard. I mean, I know guys are busting their ass and it's it's not like they're not trying, but it's like 45 nothing and 55 seven. And, you know, I mean, you can remember mm-hmm. better than I can for for two straight years and like, you know, and there was, there was really no measurable, I guess it was maybe a little bit of improvement from year one to two, but not the jump anyone wanted to see. And so it just felt, and, and when you listen to Charlie in the post game, like it didn't feel like there was any sort of philosophy undergirding what he was trying to do. Right. Like it just, you didn't, you know, you heard a little bit about like a pro style offense or, or, or sorry about a spread, but it was never clear, like what he was trying to accomplish other than from my vantage point as a fan, hearing a lot of kind of tough talk about basically kind of throwing kids under the bus and without saying it in so many words. And he was just sort of like, we need to get tougher. We need to do this. Did he ever alter the way he did things in, in that time as, as you know, sort of if it's broke, fix it. Right. Like was there ever a modification of, of his, of his approach? No, there wasn't. And I think that's, that was one of the biggest problems is, like I said, we were doing these things every single day. 
Um, and the, the way he, and like you said, kind of throwing, kind of throwing kids under the bus. I mean, when you were on, excuse my language, if you were on a shit list, you never got off of it. Um, there wasn't really a ton of, a ton of opportunity for second chances. Um, there wasn't a lot of positivity coming from him. I mean, yeah, I get it. He's a college football coach. Like there's going to be some yelling and some screaming and swearing, but the, the biggest difference for me between Charlie Molnar and whip was coach whip. If he got on you five minutes later, he's coming up to you and saying, Hey, listen, the reason I'm getting on you is because I know you can do this or I know you can do that. You know, basically I believe in you. And when you got kids that are 18, 19 years old, especially when you're expecting a lot from those freshmen, kids, kids do need that because we're still growing. We're still developing. We're still learning. And then you get the older guys that those young guys are looking up to for leadership and, and they're getting the same stuff. And there's just, he treated everyone the same and he treated everyone not terribly, but he treated everyone bad. Um, there wasn't, I can't really say that in the two se- in the two seasons that I, I played under him, um, there was maybe one or two positive conversations I ever had with him. Um, and you're, and that was, and he's a, that was, go ahead, go ahead. and that was being labeled as, you know, his quarterback, the first guy to commit to him, his quarterback, that sort of stuff where, I mean, I don't, and I tried to, tried to help out or not help out, but I tried to speak as much as I could for the freshman as being a quarterback. Cause that's what's expected of you. And there was just no room to talk to him, which was, I think the toughest part, um, you know, players couldn't have conversations with him. Yeah. This always is what struck me about Charlie Molnar is like the word to Ryan Bamford gives me a lot of shit for using big words on the show, but <laughs> incorrigible. It's an SAT word incorrigible it's mm-hmm. basically like he couldn't be it, it was like he he it, to me charlie molnar just from afar struck me as this guy who was kind of like straight out of like the 50s but not in the in the but without any of the reason to be like he was just like a hardo basically but without with, without any sort of self-awareness or ability to connect like on a on a real level interpersonally like it struck me as yeah, he could connect with you as a recruit probably briefly or as a fan briefly by saying the right things in 15 minutes. But, like, through the grind of a season, it just became clear that, like, this guy had very little ability to kind of relate on a on a human level. Like, you didn't – you know, Matt McCall on the basketball team is a is – a, you know, he had a hard year this year. And, and, you know, I think to some degree that the locker room was, was, a, was a tough place. But – you could see when he would articulate his frustrations after games and post game press conferences, like how much he cared, how much he was at least trying. Right. With Charlie, it was almost like there was almost this mentality of like, just this kind of like, uh, you know, like a, a, like a, an educator in China. It was just like, I'm the only person who can talk and that's it. And, and, and it, when, when you don't, when you do that, there's very, there's few people who can get away with that. If they're, totally brilliant as like tacticians you're kind of like all right well 
the results yeah. speak for themselves. But you can't pull that shit when you don't fucking win and you get beat 45 to 7 every week. Is my impression of him just interpersonally and like how he connected with players through the grind of a season more or less accurate or am I just talking out of my ass? No, that's entirely accurate. It was it was his way of the highway. Um, and like I said, when guys – if a guy screwed up in a classroom, guy screwed up on the field, it was really tough for them to get a second chance. If you were on a shit list, you were you were on it. Didn't matter if it was day one of camp as a freshman, all the way through his last day, um, the day after Christmas in 2013. Um, he was a tough guy to talk to, tough guy to have just a regular, just shooting the shit kind of conversation. Um, and I think me personally, from my personal opinion, I, I think he was that same exact way with his coaches as well. Um, I think they had a tough time talking to him. Um, and it was, he wanted things done one way. And if it was either going to be done that way or, you know, either you weren't going to see the field, you weren't going to, you weren't going to travel that week, or you just weren't going to get reps because you weren't doing the things that he wanted done the exact way he wanted them done um, without any questions asked. So what's, does he ever, um, as a coach kind of convey the why behind what he's doing. Right. Cause I think there are some coaches in sports who um, are very difficult personalities, but there's a, there's a method to their madness and you kind of, at least, you know, you might kind of hate them, but you begrudgingly respect them. Charlie Molnar struck me as just, there was just a madness to the madness. And it was almost like he was just trying to assume a character without actually himself, uh, you know, really knowing why he was doing what he was doing. And if you ever tried to listen to him talk about schematics, and I don't know a lot about football schematics, but like he, it was always very surface level. It didn't seem like he was doing anything terribly complicated on the field. So like, did you ever get a sense of sort of why he was this way? Did he ever convey that to the team or did he, was he just sort of like a dick and that was it? No, I mean, that was kind of it. I mean, he, um, like I said, it was his way or the highway. Um, he was, like I said, a really tough guy to talk to. And from my, like I said, from my personal opinion, I think it was he finally got himself a head coaching job. He got a chance to finally call plays. And now he has all this power and all this influence over a program. And he didn't know what to do with it. Um, we had a lot of talented coaches on our staff, and I don't know if they were actually – how much their input was ever actually given. Um, both, is that on Charles, both, side, both sides of the ball or just offense? I, I mean, I can speak more towards offense, but I'd say both sides of the ball. Um, obviously, as the head coach, you kind of want to have a pulse for everything that's going on. Um, but, I mean, I don't think he – he didn't do a good job listening to his players. He didn't do a good job listening to his coaches. He didn't do a good job listening to the training staff. He didn't do a good job listening to anyone involved in the program um, or that cared for the program. It was just, like I said, it was his way or the highway. And if you didn't like it, go ahead, transfer. And it and that turned into a mess for some people anyways. I mean, I can tell you right now, we had a conversation that a lot of guys halfway through our freshman year or freshman season really just didn't like playing for him. And 
he sat us down one day as freshmen and said, if you guys try, basically, if you guys try and leave, like, good luck, see what I do for you. Like, see what I do. So, I mean, that was, that left a lot of, a, a lot of sour tastes in everyone's mouth that this was a guy that was controlling and wanted things done his way. And if they weren't done his way, then you were just going to be on the shit list and, and you had to deal with it. So, So freshman year, you're getting this this thing. Yes, I haven't won a football game. You're starting to sour on the experience. Um, you kind of walk me through the end of that year and then, you know, the decision to return the next year. You're, if I'm recalling correctly, you and Mike Wegson are splitting mm-hmm. snaps under quarterback. It's sort of a two-quarterback system. It's not, it's not clear exactly what he's trying to do offensively, but you're both getting reps. Walk me through like the the second half of that season, just the mood around the program, and then kind of why you and other guys or whatever decided to to give it a, a second round in the year two. I mean, obviously it was tough. You when you go out, you want to win football games and and you want to put up good stats and and all that good stuff. But when you're not, it it does get difficult. Um, in my four years at UMass, we didn't have a ton of success in in terms of wins, but I think through that hardship in terms of what we were going through with our head coach, at least a lot of guys in my class built great bonds. Um, I think that's all kind of why we all stuck it out with him. Um, There was people that wanted to leave, but we'd talk as a group and we'd say, hey, listen, like, let's stick this through. You know, we came here for a reason um, and we wanted to see we wanted to 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 bring the program into that FBS era and win a lot of games. But unfortunately we weren't able to do that. Um, but like I said, I mean, it was something we, we formed such great bonds between the freshman class. And then obviously as, as the seasons and camp goes on with the older guys on the team and, and with our position coaches that, you know, we had faith in each other that we could turn it around regardless of, of what was going on from, from the head coach, head coaching spot. So uh, summer comes, you're kind of enthusiastic about year two. You're, st- are you at this point, I think Wegson is concussed. I want to say, and maybe you're starting to, you're, you're the starter at, at the start of the 13 season, right? Um, so the way it worked out is going into spring ball and summer camp me and Mike were splitting a lot of the reps with the, we were splitting the reps with the ones. Um, and at that point it was kind of, all right, whoever's going to take, whoever's going to take the lead is going to start. Um, 2013 season opens up and Mike ends up being the starter for the first game and a half. Um, he gets pulled halfway through Maine. And then I became the starter for the next, I started nine out of the next 10 games. I missed one due to a concussion. Um, and I mean, it was just, I don't want to say it was difficult because you're playing college football. You want to compete and your job isn't safe every single day. You got to go out there and earn it. So, I mean, I think that's kind of the way both of us approached it. Um, not necessarily getting any direction from the head coach as to where we, where we stood, but I mean, as quarterbacks, we have to go out there and, and prepare to play. And 
whenever it was my number or Mike's called, we had to go out there and perform to the best of our abilities. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was tough not knowing, but at the same time, you know, you got to earn the right to play. So, so you, you guys aren't winning and you do have some talent on that football team. It's year two. Now you got more, more FBS guys some transfers. I think Tajay Sharp is in, was he in your class? Tajay? Yeah. Me and Tajay are part of the same class. Yep. Yeah, so you got, I mean, Shane Huber's in that class. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, t- is Shane, no, Shane Huber's not in that class. Shane's, Shane's actually the year behind me. Okay, so, but he's playing, I think, as a freshman, and Steve Cassavi. I mean, there's a bunch of mm-hmm. dudes on that team who are pretty good, and the MAC isn't, you know, loaded. I know you're playing a really tough non-conference, but the scores at that point, you know, I, I think for me, for a lot of fans, by midway through the year, you're saying, all right, like, I know it's it's a it's a tough transition, but there's some good kids here, some 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 talented football players here, and the results are not coming. And I don't even mean the results in terms of wins, but just the performances are, are you know, mm-hmm. your, your scoreboard is not reflecting, you know, quite what what we were expecting. I don't think anyone was expecting more than a few wins, but I think they were expecting more. At what point are you guys as a team just like losing faith in? Or rather, before I even get to that, what's the film session like when you're sitting? He's a former quarterbacks coach, I believe. You're, are you sitting in a film room with him and breaking stuff down? And, and are you starting to say, ah, there's something not, there's something off here? Um, so in terms of the film, you kind of dreaded watching it with him because all he would do is come in and rip everyone's ass for Lord knows what. Um, so we would watch. I mean, typically you watch – the game film from the day from the day before on Sunday or Monday um, with your position coach and maybe the offense or and then the defense will watch it together but um, in terms of in terms of the production of the program or specifically the offense um, I mean I think that's a lot you can put on me and Mike Um, as quarterbacks it's our job to to put the ball in the right spot especially when we're throwing the ball um so I mean I don't want to put I don't want to put that on the coaches or even put fifty percent no, of that I mean, on like, the coaches what, because it's but, yeah but like you know I mean you guys there was there were some times where the play calls mm-hmm. you know people are like asking on Twitter right now that when they're like uh, why you know I said if you have questions about the Molnar era and some people are like why would he run draw plays on first and ten you know th- those sorts of things I mean at what point are you saying like or maybe you aren't I mean did you question the play calling at a certain point. Um, I don't want to say I necessarily questioned the play calling. I questioned more of who was calling the plays and why. Um, who was calling the plays? So, was? so the first game and a half was our, our quarterback's coach, John Bond. We obviously opened up at Wisconsin. Things did not go well from the start there. Um, Maine, I believe at halftime, he told oh, Coach that was Bond. A brutal that, loss. He, that, was a, that was a brutal yeah. loss. Keep going. <laughs> Maine, I believe at halftime, he told Coach Bond, no, I'm taking over. Um, he continued to call the plays up until, I want to say, week 10 or 11 when Coach Waldron took over for a couple games. Um, but, I mean, some of the stuff in terms of running the ball, at some points in time, too, when, we're, when we weren't moving it, our defense is out there a lot, and you kind of got to give them a break. So you got to mix in some running. So I can't say I was, I would necessarily question the actual play call itself. Um, I think it just goes back to having trust in his coaches. And I don't think he did. Um, 
And I mean, right now, Shane Waldron's the pass game quarter for the uh, pass game coordinator for the LA Rams. Like the guy knows football, the guy and the guy can, can call football. Um, so to have a guy like that on the staff and not utilize him to at that point through the first half of the season, from my perspective, to use him, um, it, it's just difficult. Um, I don't think it was smart to do, but at the end of the day, like I said, that's that production and the, the output is on me and Mike. Um, as quarterbacks, it's our job to to move the ball down the field and to to put our team in into scoring opportunities. And when we're not playing well, and when we're turning the ball over, we're going three and out and putting the defense in tough positions. Then then you see those short, quick drives from other teams, and and they score points and you know, a seven nothing game turns twenty one nothing real quick. So, like I said, I don't want to put that on the coaches in terms of play calling because, at the end of the day, it's our job as players to go out and execute and, and to to score points. So, is there any point in the let's say in the second season you guys are, you know, one and seven, one and eight, whatever mm-hmm. it is? The, the game you won that year was was Western Michigan, was it? I'm trying to. Think. Uh, no, we lost that one. That was the game that. Oh, that was uh, like the thirty-one thirty game on a missed kick, maybe. No, we went for two at the end of the game, oh, and that's, I, right. that's the one that I missed the following week. So. So who who is the win against that year? I'm trying to remember. Uh, that one would have been against um, Miami of Ohio, I believe, at home. Okay, so yeah, Miami of Ohio. Yeah, so at what point in the year, though, are you starting to? Is the whole thing starting to just wear on you? And is the locker room kind of? Is just the mood around the program turning? I mean, is there a point where you, as a player, I mean, obviously we're looking back several years now, but where you, mm-hmm. where you as a player are just started starting to say like. You know, this is just not the vibe right now. It's just, you know, guys don't want to be here. I mean, losing seasons are always challenging, but is there a particular point where you're saying, all right, it's two years of this, like, you know, we're, we're 10 weeks in, we're eight weeks in, whatever. Like, what what's the deal here? Like, where you're just starting to kind of question the process. Once again, I mean, you don't ever really want to, you don't ever want to question your coaches and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it's difficult there to say, but, I mean, it was tough. Losing games is never fun. It's not easy, especially when, you know, guys are playing FBS football. They're they're coming from being the best, at, the best at their respective high schools, and they're used to winning games and that sort of stuff. So for two years, losing and going two and twenty-two, um, it was challenging. But like I said, I mean, I don't think guys guys on the team never turned on each other. Um, it was just us kind of looking for for a fresh start or just something new to be brought into the program, which ended up happening, you know, the day after Christmas. So like I said, I mean, it was just, it was difficult because you're used to winning and putting up points and not allowing points on defense and all that sort of stuff. And then to come in go two and 22 and not score and, and give up a bunch of points, then it's, it's difficult. It's tough because you expect results and you want to win and you want all those good things, but it just wasn't happening. And we knew something needed to change. And whether that was us as players or, 
you know, through the coaching staff, um, something just had to. And f- fortunately, as players, that it did. So before I get to that, and I want that's that's definitely my next part of the mm-hmm. you know part of the of the process here. But you know, you hear stories sometimes around sports of particularly kind of hard ass coaches, but successful ones. Um, sometimes having the recognition themselves to say okay, things aren't going well right now. This, this, is a, this is a tough stretch. I'm going to mix it up. And you hear these stories about, you know, like Gary Williams at Maryland back in the day, just like, you know what, we're going to just play wiffle ball today or, or we're going to, you know, and just something to lighten the mood around the program. Was there, and, and what I'm hearing you describe with Molnar is that it was kind of this everyday, John, you know, Charlie one note. It was just the same grind and this is what i've heard from a lot of people it's not unique to you but anyone i've talked to who was around the program in those years was there ever a moment where you know if it's a little bit broke maybe you try to fix it maybe you try to do something else where charlie sort of uh mixed it up or was it this kind of same you know mood the entire time no it was the same throughout it was the same for both seasons under him um he didn't change his tune because like i said he wanted things done his way and it was going to be done his way or it wasn't going to be done. Um, there was never really any change. In, there wasn't a change in practice schedule. There wasn't a change in practice tempo or anything like that. Um, it was every day going in and doing the same things, getting chewed out um, and just not and I can say this just from talking to other guys and from my own personal opinion, just not enjoying football. And when you suck the joy out of football, especially for kids that are anywhere between 18 and 22, it's tough Um, because we all love the game. We're all there because we want to play and we can play at a high level. But when there's no joy in it, then things start to turn. And like I said, we were just looking kind of for something new and different. And we were fortunate that um, things did change. So it was just tough because there was never any change under Coach Molnar. And it was his way. And that was it. Yeah. And that's I actually had that written down, like the lack of joy. And you literally use the word because that that's like the that was the mood from afar. It just, it just mm-hmm. looked like guys just weren't you know they were they were trying they were going through the motions they were they were showing up they weren't quitting but it was just like i think you know to have that extra gear particularly as the season wears on and it's november now you know like you got to you got to like introduce some some joy into it and it just felt like every week with molnar it was just the same you know the same note and and i think for fans too it was this, that was the same thing and he and he, you know he said this said demeaning things about football alumni from the FCS era. And there was, you know, there's all that yeah. stuff before he gets canned because it did come as a surprise to most of us, but just before he gets canned, there's uh, an incident, uh, which video leaked of, uh, of this kind of bizarro world, uh, like maybe pro wrestling style, like pro wrestling matches after practice <laughs> and, and walk me through that. And like, what was the deal with that? So in, in terms of the wrestling and boxing and all that sort of stuff, that was actually done during the spring of 2012. Um, so oh, okay. I wasn't there yet on campus, but from what I know from guys being there, um, 
we had at least five guys tear their labrums. We had guys get concussions left and right because they were full on wrestling in, in snow and hard matted down concrete like turf. Um, we had guys boxing each other. Um, and there was in the time that he did it. And this is from what I, th- I'm pretty sure there wasn't, actually any rules against it um so it wasn't like there wasn't other schools doing some similar things in terms of the wrestling but when he had guys boxing and stuff it's just and they were wearing helmets but they had gloves on all that and just going full out and from my understanding his reasoning behind it was he wanted to weed out some of the bad guys and some of the guys that he didn't think should have been there some of the guys that maybe weren't as talented because, you know, maybe they were an FCS guy when he was only looking for FBS caliber players. And I think that's what, that's what really got him off on the wrong foot is like you said, he really came in and diminished, you know, the, the history that UMass had, had had, especially in the past 15 years with the, the 98 national championship, the 07 run at a national championship. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of love from alumni or you didn't see a lot of uh, alumni around because this is a guy that's coming in and basically knocking everything that they did and saying, and I know he used this phrase that we were playing big boy football. Um, so when you come in and you start and you get your, you get your players pissed off because you want them to wrestle and basically beat the shit out of each other, you know, for 14 or so, um, you know, winter workouts, um, and then you piss off the alumni because you want to claim that now we're playing big boy football when they're competing at the highest level of FCS. And there's a reason that the school is transitioning to FBS because they, there's, there's a belief that they can compete. Um, it's just, and this was stuff we didn't know as a freshman class going in until we got onto campus. Um, until we all signed of our, our letters of intent and all that sort of stuff. So at that point, it was just kind of like, all right, well, this is stuff we're going to have to deal with along the way. And when it comes, then we're going to have to do whatever we can and and just hope that, uh, you know, none of us get hurt out of it or, or seriously hurt our teammates, which a lot of kids got injured that spring of 2012 that, set a lot of guys even their camp back as well so we had guys that were still rehabbing torn labrums going into camp and you know now we're thinner at positions that already we shouldn't be so it was to put it lightly it was a shit show at any point in in your time there um Mm -hmm. do you have or not you, insofar as you know, do you or, or uh, any of your teammates or maybe staff members have outside communication with the administration at that point, John McCutcheon's staff? Is there anyone kind of at, at a certain point when you've gone, you know, I, I don't know, after, after the 20th loss, let's say, and there's mm-hmm. very little progress and there's, you know, it, doesn't, it didn't seem like things were looking up in any way, right? Is there any point where those guys from the department are starting to poke around and sort of just take the pulse and say, you know, obviously you let you let the coach run his program, but say, hey, uh, you know, what's the mood around the program, right? Like, I mean, that's the job of a, of a, of a of an administrator is to figure out 
sort of if if the culture around a program is good and if they're if the building blocks are there for you know to go forward at any point is there is there any interaction with those folks about um sort of what's going on or or is there any of them picking your brain about any of this so during the seasons the two seasons no um i can't can't personally say that i know of anyone any coaches or or players that had any meetings or conversations with you know anyone in the athletic department um and i don't know if this is anything that has ever come out or if it's not supposed to but like i said i try and be as honest with you as i can after that sophomore season so after the 2013 season a lot of players were asked i think by the by the administration to sit down and meet with some people and and go through some interviews to talk about what had been going on, especially because at that point that that wrestling and, and boxing video had leaked or had gotten out. Um, it leaked during so a bye wanted, week, if I'm not if it leaked during a bye week, right? I don't that sounds about right. Yeah, I don't I know it was during I know it was towards the end of the season. Um but like I said, um, someone we don't know exactly who, but we had just gotten you know kind of a text message from an automated system saying, "Hey, please come in to here at this time, um, and we'd like to discuss you know different things with you." And so there's, I think, at that point in time, eighty players on the team, and 80, 80 players were supposed to be scheduled for, or probably fifty players were scheduled for you know, 20 minute talks and, or 20 minute interviews with someone. And I think almost every single player that was there still on campus ended up having one. And almost all of them went for a length of 45 minutes or more. Um, and just, they kind of picked our brains on what was going on with the program. Who's the, who's How, the they? Like administrators? I it, I don't think it was – it wasn't anyone in the athletic department. I don't know if it was done by the athletic department or done by alumni or who it was done by. So but it's like was, some sort of consultant or somebody, some outside yeah. third party that can hear a neutral you know, opinion or whatever. Yes, exactly. Um, and like I said, so all the players went through that, and um, that was right after the season had ended. So right before you know we leave campus for, for winter break – um, which, I mean, we all, like I said, we all had 20 minute interviews and the shortest ones were 45 minutes and almost everyone on the team had, had spoken to whoever, um, was conducting the, inter- whoever the third party was conducting those interviews. And that third party seemed pretty fair, reasonable, wasn't like leading you to any, they were just sort of asking straightforward questions about what's going on, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, they were just asking really open-ended questions and kind of giving us the floor to speak our mind and and what we felt was going on, what we felt was either positive or negative in the program at that time and what we wanted to see fixed and um, all good stuff, um, at least from our perspective. Um so, so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't an invitation to bash your head coach. It was just a straight up like, hey, what you know, what's the vibe around the program kind of thing? Yeah, basically. Um, and just I mean, there was questions obviously about like there's some questions about that, you know, the boxing and wrestling tape, but 
Um, it wasn't like, hey, you know, tell us what Coach Molnar does every single day or right. tell us, you know, the amount of times that he's yelled at you or sworn at you. It wasn't anything like that. Or tell us how he's being mean or how your other coaches are being mean to you. No, it wasn't that. It was, you know, how do you feel that the program could, you know, could continue to do whatever it is that's positive or what do you feel that the program is negative about the program that needs to be changed? Um, and like I said, those interviews were supposed to be for about 20 minutes. They lasted probably for at least 45 minutes for every single one. Um, because it was so just that a was good over a, conversation. So that was over a several day stretch, like in basically a month, close to a month after the season actually ends. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Um, I want to say maybe a week after the season ended and went through, um, maybe some guys had those, those talks during finals, but, um, it was about a two, three week stretch where guys were in and, and just talking and sharing their thoughts. But no indication while you're having that, that, uh, that a firing is imminent. No, but I mean, I think there was a lot of people on the team and, and that were involved in the program that were hoping for one. Um, yeah. So, because like yeah, I said, so, looking for a change. So at that point, it's like you guys are doing finals. Are people when when you're getting together and you're you're you know going to you know the dining halls or whatever and you're bullshitting with your boys? Are are you kind of like, man, I hope he's canned. I hope this leads to something. Or is it just kind of like you're not even thinking that yet? Um, I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but yeah, we, that's what we were saying. We wanted we wanted a change, and we knew that this wasn't a guy that really anyone on the team wanted to play for. Um, so he had completely lost basically the entire locker room by that point. Yeah, I could say probably a, a decent percentage of players were starting to look into transferring. And uh, did so, he yeah. lose the did he lose the team sort of during the season, or do you think they came in those weeks after, and where you guys are kind of reflecting on the season? I think he lost a lot of people. His first season, I think he lost everyone throughout that second season. Um, so it was like, and by the end of that season, it was just like, let's just finish this. Let's just be done with the season. Like, it's just, it's just yeah. misery at that point. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, it wasn't got like, by all accounts, everyone on the team liked each other. Everyone on the team got along. There was no fighting within the team, anything like that. So it wasn't, we knew it not we knew it wasn't us, but like we didn't. Right. We felt like we had the players there. We felt like you know we could we could do something and we could we could win some games and put up some points. But there was just that one thing, and like I said, when you're playing for a guy that's his way or the highway on every single thing on every single day, and there's no results to back it up, and there's no you can't even have a conversation with the guy, then it it becomes really tough to say, yeah, I want to, I want to continue to play for this guy. So, and is there any, is there any, uh, you know, are there any players at, it seems like that, that um, style stifles player leadership too, right? Like it almost discourages players from themselves taking ownership of the team because he's sort of, you know, like, you know, a, di a dictator in his, in his style. Did it, did, do you think that, 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 uh, hurt the ability of of individuals to step up and lead themselves. 
I think it was somewhat tough. Um, I mean, I don't want to say we didn't have player leadership because we had older guys that were there in the locker room that that helped us younger guys out. And in particular, Rob Blanchflower, our tight end and our oh, he was a great football player. Yeah. Um, he was he was our team's leader, um, and people followed what he what he said and, and asked of us because we knew that 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 was the guy that was going to do everything that. You know, he was expecting out of us. He expected 10 times more from himself. Um, so, I mean, I think we had some good player leadership. I don't want to say we didn't. Um, but it is, yeah, it is tough for a, for a player to step up in, in that kind of environment and kind of try and take charge when you have a guy that you say one wrong thing and, you know, things completely change in terms of your standing, on, you know, at least from his perspective. So walk me through December 26th, uh, 2013, the day you got the, the news. Where are you? Uh, how does it go down? Uh, I was at home. Um, it was the day after Christmas, and I go on Twitter, and I'm looking at my phone, and all of a sudden I see, you know, I think it was something like John McCutcheon releases Charlie Molnar of – his, you know, his duties as head football coach at, at the University of Massachusetts. And it was kind of a just a breath of relief. Um, I remember texting my, at that point, you know, some of the other quarterbacks and some of the other guys in my class that I was close with. And I remember texting my, my quarterback coach from that season and just saying, hey, listen, like, you know, appreciate everything you did. And just so you know, you know, Coach Molnar just got fired himself. So, you know, once again, thank you for everything you did and helping to to kind of provide an environment where in the quarterback room we could laugh and we could have fun and we could tell stories and jokes and and get away from just getting our asses ripped and feeling like we're not doing anything right. Um, so, I mean, it was definitely – it was – it was big for everyone on the team. Um, we all felt like it was going to be a new beginning and we were going to get someone in the program that, you know, not only cared about players past and present and, and giving us an opportunity to, to enjoy football again, which is exactly what happened when whip came in. People started to love the game again and started enjoying going into practice and going to workouts and, and it was just – it was a big-time relief that at that point in time a lot of people needed. And I think it really helped – it not did – I think it really helped. It did help the program immensely. Yeah, and, and I think – you know, I mean, I think Whipple in retrospect, you know, obviously I think right now people are just kind of glad to be on to the Walt Bell era, and, and that includes me. But I think – when we look forward, I think we, he does, you know, deserve a debt of gratitude for just kind of getting us out of those as fans, you know, and, and sir, I'm sure it's much more true for you as a player, but out of, out of the kind of dark ages of, of the Molnar era, mm-hmm. what, what's hit? What are you, is an instant like, oh, this is a relief or is there, are you a little skeptical because you've just dealt with, you know, it's like, I, we were a little like, well, who's who, or was it kind of like you knew he'd had success there? You knew he cared about the program. I mean, how does he kind of win you guys over early on? Uh, I'd say from the moment his, he had his first press conference, um, 
and said that he knew that that was a place that he wanted to be at and hearing from from guys that either knew alumni or had been around the program back then and knowing how much how much he did for the program when he was there previously and then following him you know through the Eagles and in the Browns and the Steelers and University of Miami um, we were excited for it we we were ready to go day one. Um, we obviously knew a lot of things were going to change, but then he started bringing back guys that had recently been in the program, like our quarterbacks coach at the time, Liam Cohen. Um, yeah. So when you have guys that are truly invested and, and want to see success for the program that, that, they not, that they not only played in, but they coached in, that just it, it created such a better environment and so much more enjoyable environment for us as players that um, it made it a lot easier and a lot more fun to go to practice and go to lifts and sit in meetings and and go through this new transition of basically flipping everything new offenses new defenses new special team schemes all of that um, so that was definitely a lot of fun and it, like I said it was much more enjoyable all right. Um, I guess, you know, this has been super revealing and interesting for, for fans. Um, what are some are – there, are there just some particular stories now? Is there a particular story when you, when you look back on the Molnar era that uh, with some distance between it, you know, time heals all wounds kind of deal, that you uh, find yourself kind of chuckling about? Is there, is there a bit of a – you know, like with surgeons in a, in a, in a hospital room, gallows humor when, when, when they, when you've been through a bit of a trauma, is there, are there some stories you look back on now and kind of can chuckle with your boys over? Yeah. Yeah, there definitely is. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to say this too, that, and I don't know what the purpose of it was, but a few months ago I did receive a text message from a random number. And I know some other guys did as well from, and then it ended up being Charlie Molnar. There was no apology or anything like that or reminiscing on old times, but just checking in and see what, seeing how we were doing and what we were doing in life. So I don't know if that was him trying to come to, to grips with his past and realizing he had done a lot of players, not dirty, but wrong, um, and just the way that he treated everyone. But – I will say that about him. And then, I mean, there's just funny one-liners that he used to, he used to yell at people during practice from his little bullhorn. Like, <laughs> I mean, there was points, and this is terrible to say, but there was points where he'd look at me or he'd look at Mike Wegson or any of the other quarterbacks. And if we threw a bad ball or a contested ball that ended up being contested, he'd just look at us and say, you know, what do you have? Cataracts? Um, <laughs> There was times where, and I, I use this now coaching high school kids because I find it funny and it is pretty funny where if they throw a bad ball and it looks like it was, you know, a wounded duck, he used to look at us and say, you know, what are you trying to throw it with more surface area so he can catch it easier? Um, so things like that, but there's, there's just little funny moments that you look back and like I said, that was that, that was the kind of stuff that, as players, it kept it 
not light in the meetings or at, at the facility itself, but when we're in the dining rooms or when we're in, back in the dorms, you know, that we get to go back and laugh at because it was funny at the time. I mean, it was funny at the time and it's still funny now, but I mean, there is just such a bad, bad, horrible feeling during those two years that it was tough to enjoy. Um, and looking back at it, I wouldn't change it for a thing though. Uh, there's no, there's nothing in me that, that wishes that I had ever gone to another school or played with another group of guys or played for another head coach because going through that and then getting to experience the Whipple era, um, and now looking forward to seeing what, uh, coach bell brings, um, you know, it, it truly makes me happy because I met, I met some of the best people in my, you know, some of my best friends in the world. Um, so you always try and look back and, and find the, the silver lining in it. And I think that's what it is. Um, you know, those funny little one liners and, and the people that, that I was able to meet along the way. See, it's, it's interesting because I, I think just in, in experiences I've had in life, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, is that sometimes when you have a really shitty leader or boss, it does, in a, you're, you're right, in, in a strange way, bring, you know, the, 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 the other people around them closer together. And there is this mm-hmm. kind of weird, uh, it's a weird bond. Like I, I just look back on, you know, my first job and, and like this, the, the worst boss in the world and. Uh, you know, very similar in affect to Molnar, like just that that kind of lack of self-awareness, total hardo, but no real results to back it up. And, you know, at the time, it's it's almost like traumatic a little bit. But when you look back on it, you can kind of just, you know, you just kind of see it's like you, you wish you knew now what you knew then kind of thing. And that what's, it, what's mm-hmm. revealing to me about Molnar is like, yeah, he doesn't strike me as a guy who would apologize because he probably still on some level has no real awareness of like just how bad he was for that culture. I'm sure in his mind, he's twisted all sorts of ways. And, you know, well, you know, they didn't want it. It was my way or the highway. They, they didn't want to take it. And, you know, we just got to move on like that. It doesn't seem yeah. like there is much reflection, you know, I mean, it, it just it, at least with whip, I always felt like, you know, there was a. Uh, there was a, a little bit more awareness on his front uh, to tell me about the difference between just his style um, around, around the program when he got there. Um, I mean, it was a complete 180 between Molnar and whip. Um, you could sense, like I said, coach whip cared about the guys. Um, he really knew his player strengths um, and their weaknesses and, and you could have a conversation with him. Like you could go up to him and talk to him about golf. You could go up and, and, you know, just shoot the shit with him versus coach Molnar. I mean, if you saw him off the field, you tried your best to not even, you know, other than a hello or Hey coach. Um, you just try to kind of avoid that, which is, which is tough because I mean, you want to be able to have a relationship with your coaches and, I think when you have better relationships with your coaches, it's a lot easier to play and a lot easier to do things because they trust you, you trust them, and, and you know, you're working towards one goal versus, you know, working towards one guy's 
you know, ambitions. So, I mean, it is, like I said, a complete 180. Um, he brought back coach whip brought back in the alumni, um, from, from the second he got back to campus, um, alumni started popping up at practices, um, before meetings just came by just to, just to say hello to us. Um, and it just gives you that connection too to the past and the program where now, if you go back for a homecoming game, you feel like you can talk to those guys cause you've met them before because they came back when whip came back versus you didn't. And I understand why they weren't around because I wouldn't want to be around coach or I wouldn't have wanted to have been around coach Molnar if I didn't have to be, um, when he was there. So, um, and he evidently um, made no, made no effort to engage alumni at all. If anything, he like did the opposite. Yeah, no, like I said, I mean, we didn't, um, I mean, there was probably a handful of alumni that came by in two years under him, and probably within the first two months under Coach Whip, there was 15, 20 um, that just even just came by to say hello, not even to talk about football or anything like that, but just to come by, say hello, introduce themselves, and just make that connection um, with the current players and, and meeting these past players, which is now, like I said, when you go back to a homecoming game or you're back on campus and you see these guys, you can talk to them and, and you know who they are and they know who you are because you built some somewhat of a relationship during those, uh, or at least my final two years, you know, during the five years that Whip was there. So I, I don't want to keep you forever because we go all, you know, all night, but I got two quick ones from uh, a, f- a friend of the show here. Yeah. And, um, he says, um, I don't know if he wants me to attach his name to it, so I'll just ask him in general, but uh, what, two things. One is how long um, – well, he, he's, we've sort of gone over that, how long it took for the players to realize that things were bad and getting worse with Charlie. It sounds like not terribly long. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of by the end of that first camp, right? Um, I don't know. I don't want to say by the end of the first camp, but by the end of that first season, yeah, I think there was a lot of a lot of skepticism from, from guys on the team. Um, so that – Sorry, so my bad. Keep going if you if you had more to add that to that. No, I mean just just basically by the end of that first season, I think there was a lot of not no one wanted to play for him, but there was a lot of doubt in in the way that he was leading us. Okay, what were the bus rides from Amherst to Gillette like before and after? I'm more intrigued by after games under Charlie. Um. So two two Gillette was was a different vibe because it was a Friday. Um, we had just gotten through walk through, so we had had food or something, and we're just hanging out, listening to music, talking. It's much lighter because it's not a game day. Um, the ride homes were tough because obviously, and this is one of those funny one liner type things, especially during my freshman year. He'd come in the locker room and say. You know, something along the lines of, well, we just ate another shit sandwich out there. Um, <laughs> this is so, so exactly like I would read. Like, Charlie Molnar in a certain sense, when you look back yeah. on him, I'm sure he was an asshole going through it. But he almost seems like the Michael Scott of football coaches. You know what I mean? Like, there's this just yeah, I mean, Michael Scott lack if, if of you, self-awareness. Yeah, Michael Scott, if, like, you, if, you know, you didn't really feel like he cared for you. At least Michael Scott cares for his employees, you know? No, exactly. Wow. Michael Scott, but like an asshole, Michael Scott, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, those were tough. Um, there was days and it goes back to the, the leadership of players and sitting in the back of the bus. I can, I can still remember the guys I'd sit with and Rob, you know, Blanche flower would be, you know, if you start laughing or something, you know, he'd get on you, he'd give you a little shit about it. But, um, you know, by the time that two hour bus ride back to Amherst was over, um, guys were just happy to get back to their dorm rooms or, or if we had time to, to go out and just be college students and, and have some fun and, you know, just, just be normal for a little bit. Were you ever close to quitting under Molnar or Whipple? This person asks. Uh, under Whipple, no, not a shot. Um, under Molnar, I wasn't close to quitting, but there was times where I had seriously considered transferring. Um, I just, like I said, it was one of those things where a lot of guys were in the same boat of what's our future here. Um, and my last conversation with Charlie was an absolutely terrible conversation. Like it was just the least motivating conversation you could ever have. I can still, I can tell you right now we were sitting or I was warming up with one of the other quarterbacks on, on the sideline before I walked through on Thursday afternoon, before we go to play Ohio. Um, in the final game of the season. Yep. In the final game, my sophomore season. And he comes up to me and just looks at me and says, you know, you've completed 30% of your passes the past couple of weeks in practice. And I look at him and I'm like, that's not true. I go, what do you, I go, you know, like, what are you talking about? He goes, you've completed 30% of your passes in all the competitive drills. I go, that's, I go, I know that's not even close to true. And I'm, so we kind of start talking about that. And I don't know if he was just trying to be funny or give me shit or whatever it was, but then right before he walks away, he turns and looks at me and goes, you better play well tomorrow to make my off season easier. And so, which, which, what does that even mean? Like, cause he doesn't want to get fired. Is he saying basically? So he doesn't have to get fired. So I don't, I don't even know, but to go into a game, especially at the end of a season like that, and then have that really be your last conversation with your head coach. And then when you get taken out of the game at Ohio to not even be told by him, Hey, listen, like we're taking you out. Like we're not coming back. We're getting other guys in, um, to have, you know, Coach Bond come up to me and say, like, hey, listen, I don't know if you're coming out or not. He still hasn't even told me. Um, and that's when I really – like, after that game was when I really considered, you know, is this the place for me? Um, because it was just – it wasn't an environment that was even enjoyable, enjoyable to play football in because you have a head coach that inspires no confidence in his players and – it's just a, to put it simply, it's just a dick. So, I mean, it was so, it was tough, but I'm glad I stuck through it. You know. And the other question he asks was, um, is was Charlie as unprepared and unorganized as it seemed like he was? And I'm intrigued by this one because, on the one hand, here's a guy who like always made a point. I remember of like he would say shit like to reporters like. I've gone for a run 5,319 days in a row or some shit. Like, like it was just the weirdest. Uh, 
thing. And so you, you get the sense like that he was kind of like a demanding type A personality. But on the other hand, like it didn't seem like his teams were, you know, super attuned or, or rather even him in press conferences and whatever else was super attuned to like the actual details of schematics or anything like that. So uh, I'm curious, like, was he unprepared and unorganized or was or are those not the two adjectives you would use to describe him? I don't know if I'd use those words to describe him. Um, I mean, I think it kind of, kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago where he inspired no confidence in his players. There was no – he didn't want to play for him. Um, Coach Whip was a guy that you wanted to play for. So that's just the difference in my experience between the two coaches. Um you always felt like you had a chance under Coach Whip versus Coach Molnar. When things were going bad, you were going to get your ass chewed out and you were going to get questioned on every little thing that you did. And there wasn't going to be a, okay, let's reset, you know, next series type of thing. It was, why'd you just do that? Why'd you do this? Right, right. Why, you know, why didn't you do that? Yada, yada, yada. And it just, it got to a point where you, Kids just started tuning them out and just hoping for something different from the program. Or if they weren't going to get it, they were going to they were going to leave. Myself included. There was times where I thought about it. Um, there was never ever actually any real conversations. Um, it was just kind of either me and close friends on the team, or me and you know my girlfriend talking. But it was never. It never, fortunately, it never got to the point where, you know, I had to make that decision. Um, but it was just a tough environment to play in, and you just didn't want to, not you didn't want to be there, but you didn't want to play for the guy. Let's wrap things up by moving away for a moment, segueing away from um, from the Molnar years, and 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 kind of looking ahead at UMass football more broadly, you're a coach mm-hmm. you're, you, you do some high school coaching now in, in Massachusetts, yep. correct? Yeah. So you, you understand the landscape of uh, college football in the Northeast and particularly in Massachusetts. Um, mm-hmm. UMass is now transitioning to its third coach in the FBS era. In many ways, you know, my, my contention, I've said it a lot on this show is that it's very much make or break, I think, for this football program in the next three, four or five years in the sense that uh, I think football in the Northeast in general is becoming a harder proposition. You have fewer kids playing at the high school level. And I think that mm-hmm. uh, for UMass to, um, you know, get this thing where fans would like it to be, you know, Walt Bell pretty much has to get it done or, or it's the situation is going to be dire. What do you think um, – the keys are for a coach at UMass in particular uh, to getting it. And look, like I, I want to give Whipple credit. You know, he, he took mm-hmm. it from one win to four. And now I think you got to seven or eight to, to be relevant. But what is it going to take in general from Walt Bell, but or really from whomever it is, you know, long term to make UMass football um, a at least regionally relevant product and, um, you know, I mean, I mean, what are you, what are you looking for, like in terms of the leadership of of your alma mater? Um, and obviously, there's, I mean, these decisions are are 
thoughts would be way above me. But I think the toughest thing is is not having a conference and not having a consistent schedule to identify with in terms of the MAC. Um, and I understand why why the school chose to leave the MAC, but I think getting into a conference would be big. Um, and then I think in terms of just getting or in terms of local buzz within the Northeast, I think getting recruits from the Northeast and how do I think you do that is I think you, maybe you reach on some players, but for like my story, you always remember your first offer. And and a guy that I talked to put it perfectly is, you know, who was the first girl you kissed? And, you know, now tell me who the seventh girl you kissed was. You don't really remember that seventh girl, but you're always going to remember that first. So I think in terms of just getting, you know, more local fans, that may be a way. Um, but there's no right or wrong way for for anyone to go about it. Um, it's just a matter of having players that fans and alumni can can respect and enjoy and, and, and love to watch them play. And obviously you want to see your team win, but listen, it's football. Like it doesn't matter who you're playing every single week. You see it every year, top five teams losing to unranked, no name teams because that's just the way the game is. Um, so in terms of expecting, you know, seven to eight wins or all that sort of stuff, that's going to come. Um, it's going to happen. There's going to be a season where it's just, there's going to be some revelation or breakthrough where now UMass is winning, you know, seven plus games a season. And then I think getting into a conference and getting consistently into a bowl game or something like that would really help. Um, and like you said, it's tough in the Northeast because we have the Patriots and the Patriots have had unbelievable success. So there's not a lot of not a lot of room for wanting to see, you know, college football. But, I mean, I think both UMass and the rest of the programs in New England, if they have a couple of years of success or start stringing some seasons together, two out of three, something like that, it's proven that people love the sport up here. So people will get behind it and – like I said, it's just going to have to be one of those things where something's just going to click one of these days and and we're going to be looking back at the Molnar era saying, you know what, even though it sucked for those two years, um, you know, it makes this mu- it makes this point in time that much sweeter. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Coach Bell does up at UMass. Um, have you had to ch- have you had an opportunity to uh- – to engage with him yet since he got the job? No, I have not. I've I've talked to a couple guys that I still know that are there about um, – I had thought about going up for a couple spring practices, but just with my schedule with, with coaching and, and working camps, it just didn't allow it. But um, everything that I've heard about him has been good. Um, people that I know that have, have worked with him or played for him at – other schools have all said good things. So um, you hope that, you know, UMass, UMass football can have a, a, a big turnaround like the hockey program did or 
that kind of feeling or that sense with the basketball program, especially with the, the, the recruiting class that the basketball program got this year, um, that things are going to turn. And, and once they do, like I said, it's just going to make this, uh, those first two years, it's going to make it that much sweeter and that much more worth it that, you know, I'm really excited to see what happens and, you know, no matter what, I'll always watch them and always root for them. And, you know, it's, it's always going to have a special place in my heart. So, and you should know, uh, you know, I can't speak for the fan base, but I can speak for myself. And I know a lot of others feel this way that we, we really do uh, appreciate all that you guys gave those first two years. And I think everybody could see that this was not uh, on the players and it was, it was a diff- it was a difficult set of circumstances to walk into and just taking a chance to, you know, come and be a part of that first class. I think, a lot of guys in that group will be, I mean, Tajay Sharps in the NFL. I mean, there's a lot of guys that will be remembered for doing a lot at a, at a, in a really difficult set of circumstances for, you know, on a variety of levels. So I think there is kind of a, on among the diehards and those are the ones who listen to the show, you know, there's certainly appreciation for your, your cohort there in that in that class and uh especially for those that you know stuck it out and and stayed under whipple and uh i know i know as for you in particular whipple brought in front apple it was you know so i think it's it was classy that you changed positions so i think i think people do remember uh what you gave and, and other guys class gave. so on behalf of uh, really myself but others i know as well thanks for for all you did as well yeah, no problem. And I mean, thank you for having me on. And like I told you um, last week, it was, I think it's a, it's something that the fans, especially the, the extremely loyal ones that no matter what, I mean, I'm still communicating with some guys on Twitter um, that you guys deserve to kind of have an, an inside look is at least from my perspective, the way things were, um, you know, for those first two years and, and you know, that, we can only hope that things go up from here. Um, and like I said, I'm excited for what's, what's going on up there. Um, and Will you be able to make it to make it to any games this year? I'd assume so. The tough thing is the, the league that I coach in, um, a lot of our games are on Saturdays. I, w- I was fortunate enough last year that, um, we didn't have a game homecoming weekend. Um, so I'm going to try try like hell to get up there to a game and, and watch. But if not, I'll either be tuning in on the radio um, or, you know, they had enough games on television this year that, that I was fortunate that uh, I'd get to come home from a a game of my own on Saturday and come home and watch them. So um, whenever I, where are you coaching? Sorry. Yeah. My bad. I cut you off. Sorry. Where are you coaching again? Just to. I coach at a school called Nobles and Greeno. Um, It's it's an ISL school in, in Dedham. Um, so it's, it's a unique schedule. It's different than a, an, an MA or MIAA, um, school because we're in a different league, but, uh, it's a lot of prep schools. Um, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that I learned in my four years at UMass that, uh, that I'm just trying to help out and, and pass on to, you know, to the kids that I coach. You're the quarterbacks coach there. Yes, I am. Yep. Right on. And then, yep. And then um, I Anything? also work. 
for a camp to doing um, doing quarterback stuff as well. So there's that's why during the spring I wasn't able to uh, to get up to UMass. Anything you want to plug for anyone on the show? We we always ask guests like you know is there a, where they can find you on Twitter if there's a, if there's a if you got a private camp or whatever anything you want to plug this is your chance. Um, I don't necessarily say I want to if I want to plug anything, but I mean, if anyone has questions or, or wants to know more or anything like that, or they feel that, you know, they want an answer on a different question, um, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or whatever social media. My Twitter is, um, at one, the word one. So O N E, um, the number five and then underscore AJ. Um, if you have any questions or anything like that, just, feel free to ask me. Um, like I said, all this stuff was from my perspective, my view. Um, and I hope that I was able to, to help out and, and give you guys and, and the rest of, you know, the, the UMass fans, a a little bit deeper of a dive into what it was actually like under Charlie Molnar. Definitely did. Bennett, you got anything? Nope. I'm all good. That was, uh, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks, AJ. So thanks again tonight to AJ Doyle for joining the show. Really, really great stuff. We will be putting together, I hope, in the next couple days, uh, a more traditional episode where we talk a little bit about the Frozen Four, uh, which Bennett and many of you attended, as well as an extended mailbag and updates on UMass basketball's offseason and a little bit on the spring football season for football. So we'll do a traditional episode, I would hope, uh, later this week, maybe Wednesday or Thursday, maybe if we have time. Uh, but for now, This is the uh, A.J. Doyle episode, and uh, we hope you'll enjoy it.